You're listening to B2B Nation, a podcast from Technology Advice designed to help marketers navigate the modern B2B buyer's journey. Here's your host, Mike Pastor. Step one of inbound marketing strategies, get people to your website. Step two, figure out what to do with them once they get there. And in particular, figure out which ones you should be marketing to, which ones are simply browsers, and which ones are job seekers, and so on. I'm Mike Pastor from Technology Advice. On this episode of B2B Nation, we're going to talk about reading the signals of your web traffic to help identify the opportunities and understand who's showing intent based on the pages they view and other data you can gather using commonly available tools. Joining us for this discussion is Christian Mauhoxen. Christian is one of those accidental marketers who, in this case, set out to work on the technical side of the music industry and somehow ended up exploring the ins and outs of inbound marketing and search engine optimization. Christian is also the co-author of a book about cross-cultural digital marketing, so we're going to touch on how language and cultural differences can make or break some of your digital marketing strategies. Have a listen. Christian Malhoxen, welcome to B2B Nation. Thanks for joining us. Why don't you take a minute to introduce yourself? Tell us who you are and what you do. Well, I am a, a musician wannabe that studied sound engineering uh, because I wanted to record music because I wasn't good enough uh, to play in bands. And because of my technical background, early on, people started to come to me when this things like Google started to come up and, 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 and things like that and ask me if I could help them with marketing because I had a technical background. And, and, and if I could understand Google uh, and so on. Icelandic, uh, five kids, two grandkids, realized that very few people speak Icelandic, so I had to make sure that I spoke a couple of other languages. Wrote a book called Multilingual Search Engine Marketing, uh, uh, which is, was focusing on mainly teaching the U.S. market uh, that no, people do speak other languages than English outside of the markets and know the Nordics, even if they are similarly similar from a cultural point of view, they're surprisingly different. Uh, so, so the book was about that. And, 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 and so, yeah, a, a tech guy that happens to be a marketing guy, I don't know how to explain that better. And, and, and then moving from there, um, uh, started to focus more on business to business, uh, realizing the opportunities that companies had in, in using technology and and digital approaches to sell their products. So let's talk about intent. There are a number of vendors out there in the business of collecting and analyzing intent data. And if your organization has the budget to take that route, you can go to them. But there's a lot of B2B marketers who are managing their inbound strategies. They're doing SEO work, uh, trying to rank in Google. They're trying to figure out the intent of the people who are coming into their site. What advice do you have for them? Well, collect data. Uh, data is so crucial. Um, talk to your uh, clients, get data from them directly. Um, understand how people behave uh, on your website. Try to identify ways to collect that data to uh, create some kind of a, 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 a pool of, of information that you can take from to kind of streamline your activity. Understand the difference between each visit, whether they are there just to find your address or uh, to read the blog. And based upon behavior on your website, uh, try to understand where they sit within an organization. Because so yeah, collect data, make sure that you have that data uh, that that is cross department 
it, it can be used across departments so that is shared between sales and marketing uh, there's there's too many silos between those and intent data also understand the difference between those who are casually uh, going and visiting your blog versus those who look at certain uh, web pages um, as a sample I can I have seen through uh, research that I've done is that the about us page for example is crucial uh, if you understand who looks at the about us page versus the contact us page versus a product page that can actually give you a lot of insights into how and why people are on your website and and this actually can play a role into different markets so so um, um, Germans will be looking at different content than Danes and 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 and, and Americans will look at different content than the English is culture also. So you have to think about this in a little bit wider context, but data is so important. Uh, and, and, and if you if you can invest in tools to aggregate that and and, and visualize it and use it, then, then you should. What is the difference between people that visit an about page and a contact us page since you brought it up? Most of the times the about us page actually touches the initial point. So if you if you're selling, if you're selling uh, something and you you see somebody look at the product and then you see somebody look at about us page and then uh, uh, the leadership page or team page then that is uh, often a really strong signal of interest that they, they they are not only looking at your product but also looking at that what the company stands for who is working at there what are the credit cre what was what are the credibility of the company that it has um, does it have any cases any case studies that, that, that can be used to uh, kind of showcase. But the about us page actually seems to be kind of the center point uh, in all of this. So if you see somebody look at certain set of pages and the about us page is a part of it, it actually is highly likely that they are interested in what you're trying to sell. Now, the, the contact us page, though, I kind of feel like that would be a signal of intent. Um, but I guess is only if they actually execute on that, right? And they actually contact you. Yeah, but it, it can also be, it depends on the content because uh, if you if you look at person who are applying for a job, for example, or, or somebody that looks at the team page, doesn't look at the product pages, but only looks at the team page and potentially a um, um, couple of blogs based upon uh, something that is related to the people they looked at on the about us page, and then they go to the content us page, that could actually be somebody looking for a job. But but you, you have to you have to apply certain kind of rules to this and 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 take in the data and learn from it. So uh, and and you learn from it by asking questions. So when you get a lead in, it's actually okay to when you take up the first phone call say, hey, how did you find us? Did you like did you like the content on our website? Like set a list of questions that also qualifies your thoughts about the behavior of those who are visiting to the website to be able to qualify them and understand their intent. And, and one of the things that you can use is, for example, HubSpot. HubSpot uh, has a CMS system, which actually very few people seem to know about. They, I think they rolled it out like two years ago. And, and they use HubSpot. If you use the HubSpot CMS system and you collect data based upon the pages that have been looked at, because every page gets stats, you use Google Analytics and apply that together, Actually, HubSpot is something that you could use to actually try to understand these behavior patterns. And there are other tools out there, of course, on top of that, yeah, that, that can do similar things. But HubSpot actually has, has the CMS system actually has been quite interesting to me uh, looking at data like this. And so since you brought it up, let's talk about the various ways to qualify leads. 
you can ask qualifying questions on a form. Mm -hmm. You can infer based on action taking, taken, mm -hmm. like you were just saying, the focus on a piece of content they downloaded. Uh, you can score based on multiple actions taken. So that's something that HubSpot can help you with, to your point. Mm -hmm. Do you have a preferred method for understanding where a lead belongs in the sales cycle, or is it a combination of all of this stuff? What I've seen, um, because I tend to go in as a consultant into companies and look at the way that they build up. And what I've seen, which is actually my pick as a price, is that most companies lack two things. They, they, they lack uh, the connection between sales and marketing. And most of the time, uh, marketing is governed by sales, which I think is a mistake. Uh, it, it creates this last click cannibalization of, of, of leads coming in. And then also a lot of companies assume things. They, they, they instead of actually going to the point we spoke about before uh, about data, they, they, they tend to assume things. Uh, they, they, they base that a lot of on feelings instead of, so, so they, they assume the intent or they, uh, and, and therefore they do certain things in the way that they handle marketing and, 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 and communications. But to verify it is actually what you should be doing. So when you are qualifying leads, you should not qualify them based upon assumptions. Assumptions can be great in the beginning, but you have to qualify them, then verify that you're correct. And you do that by asking questions. To answer the question uh, uh, more to the point is that my, pref my preferred method is actually identifying what is in what's actually at location when I come in and when you are trying to build something up. Because often, even if, if I would have a wish list of things to be in place, I need to kind of, or companies need to look at what they have and work with what they have because they might not be able to change it. But if in a perfect world, you implement systems like like HubSpot. We mentioned that, or Pardot and Salesforce, or or Marketo, and 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 you and you, you create a system that actually qualifies it. And then within that system, you have certain touching points that then funnel the lead towards the actual sales. So while marketing might be rel relatively high up and 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 has the goal of of, of creating the uh, uh, the the brand um, equity and, 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 and brand preference uh, sales has, and, and, and then kind of push things down towards sales, sales then takes it over and then kind of uh, nurtures it down into, uh, into a cycle until it becomes a, a, a qualified lead and, and a sale in the end. But at least have a system. And again, going back to what I was trying to say to you before, is that I'm always surprised about how poorly companies do this. I'm, I'm, I'm amazed. Fortune 500 companies to small micro mums and papas, they seem to have the same problem. It, it, there's a si there are silos and assumptions. And it's, uh, it's just crazy how, how this seems to be universal. It's, it's, uh, it's, this has been one of my biggest surprises uh, uh, throughout you had mentioned a perfect world, which I think we all know doesn't exist <laughs> in marketing or elsewhere. But in that perfect world, you touched on marketing and sales alignment, which is a topic that comes up on this podcast pretty often. Is there an ideal organizational structure for marketing and sales? Or is it one of those things where there is the ideal organizational structure for each organization? How would you, if you were starting from scratch, how would you organize it? 
Well, well, firstly, I would differentiate between brunt activation and sales activation. That's the first thing I would do to make sure that there's a there's a difference between the way that you approach those two. Then the roles have to be clear. Who does what and why do they do that? that? That's the second thing that I would look at. And the third one would be the tools that we use to actually make this happen. And if we look at the way that sales and marketing should be working together, there should be literally, they should be joined at the hip but have the freedom to work within the boundaries of brand activation, that will be marketing, and then sales activation, which is then sales. But there is kind of this gray line which, which is tough to crack in between. So in a perfect world, um, the honest answer to that is that I actually don't know. I, I have never been able to build that properly. And the reason why, so it would be dishonest of me to say to you that, that I know what the perfect world is, because in reality, even if I think I've built something, or if I, in my mind, I would want to build something, either I haven't been able to test it because nobody wants to go all the way in, or what I've been trying to build up has had some merits to it, but not been perfect enough to for me to say here, yeah, I would actually want to make a t-shirt with it, uh, with like a t-shirt and, and a flag and, and, and go running around with it and say, this is exactly how to do it. <laughs> It's it's there's a there's a cultural thing, it's political things. There's a lot of things that play a role in this, but but at least differentiate between brand activation and sales activation. Make sure that you have the data to look at and understand it, and develop that uh, data so that you are able to act on it. That's the that's the best answer I can give to you. <laughs> Oh when we get back to in-person events, everyone should show up with their org chart on a t-shirt and wear it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right? This is how we do it, and it works for us. Yeah, it works for us. Yeah, it's brilliant. <laughs> so we've been talking, you mentioned user journeys. We've been talking about user journeys a lot here at Technology Advice recently. I read a quote from a report that Forrester did that said, expect every buyer to forge a unique path. Essentially... Yeah. Buyers have all the control because they have all of the information sources available to them. How do marketers reconcile the fact that the buyers have all the control with their marketing automation? You mentioned a bunch of applications a couple of minutes ago, the buyer journeys that they map out. They're basically laying out a path for prospects to follow, but increasingly the buyers aren't going to follow it. How do, you, how do you reconcile that? You can argue that uh, if we are going to a meeting, you and I, or, or, or let's say there are 200 people going to a meeting and we all have to go up the same stairs, even if we go all the same up the same stairs, uh, we all walk differently up that same stairs. So we have different shoes on, uh, we have different clothing on, uh, we might be a little, little bit to the left, to, to the right, some take two steps, some take one step. So yes, I mean, you can argue that everybody has their own way of reaching to a conclusion, but there are certain things which are universal, which we will like, we'll probably all be wearing shoes, not maybe the right same shoes. We'll all be wearing clothing, I hope. And, and so, and we would probably all walk up uh, that same stairs, but we might do it differently. So it doesn't mean that we don't reach the same endpoint. My experience tells me that there are certain things that people look at. They, they, they will look at the credibility of, 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 the, of, of the company. They will look at the, the quality of the product. They will look at cases, 
case studies, how can I connect to that? If you are strong in the automotive industry, for example, it's likely that you will get clients from that industry uh, because you have cases that you can show that show it works. Um, even if they have different ways of approaching it, there are certain touching points that would probably be the same throughout their consumption of those con of those touching points might be a little bit different and take those people on the journey and and and, and you mentioned uh, marketing automation i'm also often i'm also quite surprised about the lack of usage or or let's say let's say let's 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 explain it a little bit differently i'm i'm often quite surprised on how low priority medium like Google and Facebook and LinkedIn has. LinkedIn seems to have a little bit higher uh, um, uh, stature within the B2B world, but Facebook and, and Google actually are really strong. And if you are clever in the way that you use them, how you use data, how you feed data into it, and how you use them to remarket, to build lookalikes and chase people based upon certain methods of, 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 of kind of channeling them onwards into the buyer's, uh, into the buyer's funnel or to becoming a client. Um, you can have touching points throughout the journey, even if they have different ways of reaching to the end. My theory on, my theory on Facebook with B2B is that I think people don't see it for what it is. And it's a media platform. You look at it and you see people's friends and they're posting baby pictures and stuff. Mm -hmm. But in the same way that, you know, big vendors would buy an ad in the New York Times where 90% of the content in the paper was irrelevant mm -hmm. to what IBM was trying to do. The, the, if the eyeballs are the right eyeballs, it doesn't matter if they're on Facebook. And I, I think because people, Facebook has been lumped in as one of these big tech companies. It's a big company you know, all the talk about breaking up Facebook, whatever. But at the end of the day, it's a media platform. And I think that gets lost on people. Like they and don't I, seem to understand the influence it has because they yeah. don't look at it as a media platform. Yeah, and I agree with you there. It's, it's, it's actually, and, and, and to that point is that we then tend to take all of these platforms and, and apply to them more or less the same rules of engagement. But they have different, they have different um, um, sites to them, which need to be capitalized on. So as you, to your point with Facebook is that people are in a different mindset when they're in there. But if we have in mind that people buy from people, even B2B, even Airbus airplanes or, or large-scale infrastructure IT systems, they're still people. Uh, and, and we have to address it as such. So we can, we can create a buyer's journey by understanding how the medium that we're using fits into the lives and how we move them onwards. Yeah. You mentioned uh, cross-cultural marketing, focus of your book. You're obviously from the Nordics. You wrote a book helping with Americans, helping Americans understand cross-cultural marketing. Deservedly or not, I think American companies and people have a reputation of maybe not understanding other cultures to the extent that other areas of the world do. How, how is everyone doing with cross-cultural marketing? You go to the big vendor sites and you see the list of countries and you, or the list of flags, however they want to show it, so you can get it in your local language. You can get the information in your local language. Beyond that, 
are vendors thinking about the other cultural differences? You mentioned the difference between someone in the Nordics and somebody in Germany. Are people just relying on basic translations and ignoring some of those other cultural differences? In defense of your fellow countrymen, uh, if, you, if you're in New York, the amount of people <laughs> that live in New York is the same amount of people that live in Sweden, I think, uh, about 10 million people, if I remember correctly, uh, plus minus. Uh, and so, so the size of the U.S., uh, it just makes it so that you can think so much inward while you have uh, somebody from Iceland who is 350,000 people. And we have to be thinking extra ex as extroverts, so looking outside constantly to be able to kind of bring, bring something in. So we are a thousand times smaller than the U.S. But, but to your other question, um, they're getting much better at it, actually. So co companies are getting better and better at it. Some 15 years ago, plus minus, uh, we did an AdWords campaign. I'll, and I'll give you a sample of, of the change that is happening. So Lenovo did a, a, did a uh, uh, AdWords campaign um, into the Nordics. They said, okay, we'll just do it in English because all of them speak English anyway. And we did try to say, no, actually, yes, they will speak English, but, but they will use the native language to buy the product. No, no, we, we'll just use English. So, so, so we used English as such. And we did actually get a lot of clicks and there was a lot of attraction. So you, you could clearly see that, that people were interested, but there was no conversion. And so the, the question was, why is there no conversion? you turned on the local language and then conversion happened. We realized then that people were researching in English. They found information about the product. So they were in an informational stage. So they were clicking and looking at products and stuff like that, but they didn't feel comfortable buying it because it wasn't talking to them in their own language. So the buying page itself, there was a lot of information. People could look at that information, they could learn from it, which is great, and they could compare products, but they wanted to buy in their own language. As soon as that was switched on, then conversion went off. So transactional searches were in the local language. And this we have seen constantly, and, I, and, and, and through the years I've seen constantly throughout any industry, B2B, B2C, local language, has a much stronger conversion rate than, than if you try to force them into doing uh, one language, uh, English in this case, then um, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a game changer. Yeah, that, to me, that's a customer experience thing. I remember years ago, uh, working on a webcast with a big vendor, they wanted to target Latin America. They wanted to do it in English with Spanish subtitles on it. And I remember thinking, you're a huge company. You've got to have thousands of native Spanish speakers who could do this webcast. Yeah, like, yeah. why would you do that? And, and then you have the annuances of, of, of Spanish in, in the South American countries because right. uh, even like you have uh, terminology uses is different um, um, uh, based upon like Argentina versus Puerto Rico versus Peru versus Chile versus right. then Spain, Spain. So there, so even if, if the foundation of the language, the grammar is the same, there are, there are, uh, there are nuances to the language which you will miss out. Like yep. um, if you take Germany, for example, they, they have a word for mobile phone, uh, but, but they will use handy, which is a word which is a slang word. So if, if somebody trying to sell mobile phones doesn't know that goes into the market and doesn't understand that, that Germans actually use that word, 
then they will miss out on, on a huge part of the market. It's the same with uh, laptops. Laptops is being used in Norway and as a word and, 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 and so on, but they, they have a specific word for it also, which is probably half of the services. So, so, so you, you miss out on by not understanding the cultural impact that your product, that if you don't understand the culture, culture that you're targeting, even if you have the language, uh, you might miss out because you don't, you're not applying the cultural nuances also. Yeah, I learned Spanish, Cuban Spanish, one might say, because my Spanish teacher, who I had for two of the four years in high school, learned her Spanish from a Cuban. Thank so I, it's a different accent, different nuance, like you said. So yeah, it's not as simple as you all speak Spanish. We're going to find yeah, a Spanish yeah. speaker. And I must give credit to Anne Kennedy, who co-wrote the book with me, uh, a friend of mine in the U.S. Uh, she, she co-wrote the book. You talked about data before. You talked about a bunch of things that you think you're surprised that companies large and small don't do. If you had to choose one marketing tactic that you think is underutilized in B2B today, what would it be? Well, I, I, I think one of the things that I, I think companies miss out on, and we spoke about it earlier, is Facebook. I, I'm, I'm actually, Facebook is kind of my new favorite when it comes to B2B marketing. Uh, uh, specifically from a brand activation or from, from kind of building brand equity, I've, I've seen brilliant things uh, uh, and uh, happening out of that. Uh, that's one of the things which I, I, I have kind of fallen in love a little bit with over the past years. Um, they're also not expensive, not as expensive as as, as LinkedIn, for example. Um, but but LinkedIn is of course a brilliant, uh, still still one of the stronger channels. And the other one is is understanding how Google works. Um, I mean, Google, as from a search point of view, is not only uh, a brilliant way to target, but it also gives you a lot of insights into the terminology that is being used. What type of phrases are being used to search? And what phrases actually convert versus, versus phrases that actually just generate visits. And by understanding the phrases that are being used to convert, you can then look, take that into your content strategy and, and, and look at how you work with blogs and, 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 and blog content and, and use that data to kind of feed into the bigger machine that is. So um, that would be probably be uh, one of the things which I, I find which uh, um, uh, are basic but but very much overlooked and I'm, I'm, I'm again I'm very much surprised about that the the overinvestment in expos and 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 and, and, uh, and these uh, conferences is something which uh, has been interesting over the years I do understand that they are important and we should not ignore them absolutely not but I think what has been happening over the past year or so has taught us that companies can actually do quite well with uh, uh, the digital approach. But now with uh, uh, COVID kind of going a little bit, slowing down a little bit, we can start to use that experience and mix that with the conference expo part. Remembering that people buy from people, which is a key thing here. We hear so much about Google and Facebook, but you could still say that they're underutilized by most B2B marketers, you think? Yeah, you get this feeling that they've taken over the world, yet there's still room to, to leverage those. Yeah, but, but, but there is. And, and, and what is, like, if, if you think about it like this, how, how can a company reach the world? Well, it's definitely not by advertising in New York Times. 
the, the only way for us to actually go outside of our borders, outside of our local neighborhood, is by using digital medium. And, and, and the fastest way to do that is to use the platforms that I mentioned there, like Twitter also is, 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 a, is a great platform for that, depending on what you're trying to do. And, 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 then, and then if you go into um, markets like China, then you realize that actually those platforms are useless. And then you have a lot of other local soups that you have to work on, realizing that everything that you know is useless and you have to, uh, you have to learn it from scratch. <laughs> <laughs> or, or you have to hire a marketer in China. Or you have to hire a marketer, yes, yes, <laughs> to realize that. But that, but that, but I, I think um, companies tend to overcomplicate things um, uh, by they, 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 their approach tend to be overcomplicated, uh, most likely because we are at a junction between traditional marketing and, and digital marketing still in 2021. But we are moving quite fast now. And I think 2020 has forced a lot of companies to rethink their approach to uh, marketing and communications. Is that because of the tools you think? There's like there's a tool available for everything, it seems. And you buy a tool so you can execute on a certain tactic. Yeah. And now you've invested in the tool, so you gotta do it. And is that how is that how things become overcomplicated? Is it the data? You can look at data, like keep looking at it, and you see a different thing today than you saw yesterday. What's yeah. at the What's at the root of that? I, I don't think that's a simple answer to it, but 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 yes, uh, I think there's something there. Um, uh, to your point, there's a there's a point in what you just said here. Um, the way that you can, like, if you I don't know if you know a tool called Semrush, for example. Oh yeah, uh, it's it's a brilliant tool. Um, it's it's one of the reasons why I like it so much is, is because it's multilingual. It actually supports Icelandic. You can do keyword research in Icelandic, and and you can do market analysis in Icelandic, which I love because if they're able to do a, a country of three hundred fifty thousand people and they do it quite decently, then they will do Vietnam and and whatever other countries that, that they have well because that's a bigger market. I can't remember what if you get lost. If you, you can't see the forest because of the trees or the trees because of the forest, we, right. we, we tend to come there. We tend to kind of like lose eyesight of what really matters. So a tool like Semrush, which is a brilliant tool, by the way, is, is something which we, we tend to get lost in because there's so many selections and opportunities that you can work from there. Uh, and, and so, yeah, so yeah, you, you, you might be right there that we, we, we have access to so much data that we've kind of lost eyesight of what to use and, and, and how to use it or, or, or afraid to because, I don't know, yeah, you might be right there. There's a question we ask every guest on B2B Nation, and that is, what is your favorite tool? What's the one thing that if we took it away from you, your productivity would plummet? Uh, my 49-inch screen. Uh, I, I, that's that's like that's my that's 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 the thing that I love the most here. Like my 49-inch. Like it's like I can I can I can I can be looking here and I'm still looking, identifying where I'm going with it. It's like it's 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 so big. Uh, but besides that, besides that, um, there are certain tools which I really love. And from a marketing point of view, uh, these are tools I, I've mentioned. Semras, for example, uh, I, I I did mention. Uh, um, uh, HubSpot, uh, that's not exactly, like I, I've worked into Salesforce and, 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 and Pardo and, and, and all these are all great tools. Um, uh, 
uh, from a data point of view as a marketeer, I, I really like the way that HubSpot has kind of immersed the CMS system into the data and how you'll be able to work. Spark Toro is another tool which I really like. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a new tool that came out in the US, I think last year, which I really love. Uh, it, it has a lot to do with intent. If you do want to do intent understanding, then Spark Toro is brilliant. And then Talkwalker, which is one of the, the things that I, I, I really like, I, I don't know if you heard about it, but, but um, um, working with it and understanding, for example, how, how like getting, getting a topic and the emojis cloud around the topic and then understanding, and, and, and this actually has, the reason why I like it so much is actually to place into the role of, into, the, in, into this multilingual thing is that we probably just need to all go back to hieroglyphs because then we would be able to speak the same language. Because a, smi <laughs> a smiley emoji means the same in 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 in, uh, in China as it does in Norway and Iceland in the U.S. And I, one of the things which I've liked really much is to understand uh, that I don't have to understand the language as long as I realize what the emojis are about. So I can look at topics and I can analyze it based upon the emojis that are happening, not necessarily. So so yeah. So these are the these are kind of maybe the tools that I, I use a lot. Uh, as a part of my research into what the buyer's intent and 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 the journey, user journey, and 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 and, and how to qualify leads and, and and so on, so these are actually brilliant tools. Uh, they 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 are historically maybe more B two C, but I, I I've seen that they work quite well in the B two B world. We do have an episode with Todd Grossman, who is the CEO Americas for Talkwalker. Yeah, it's a it's a brilliant tool. I, I really like it. It's uh, it's one of these tools that. I've been using over multiple years. Christian Malhoxen, thanks for joining us on B2B Nation. Thank you. Uh, happy that you invited me. Thank you. Thanks again to Christian Malhoxen for being our guest on this episode of B2B Nation. If you found this episode insightful, be sure to share it with a friend or colleague. And don't miss an episode of B2B Nation by subscribing on Apple, Google, Spotify, or SoundCloud. Thanks to the crew at Technology Advice, Sarah Wingate. Amy Dunn, and Emily Whalen, who in any language is the best podcast showrunner in the business. Rock out to mnemonics in the guild on your way out, and we'll see you next time on B2B Nation.